All right. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. You can find Jonah. You can find Micah. Micah is right after the book of Jonah. And um, we're going to see a few things here in this passage about the nation of Israel, uh, about some things that are going on, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about a legal subject matter this morning. Uh, this does not count for any law CEs, so if you were looking for that, it doesn't apply, but uh, we're going to talk about some legal things uh, from the Word of God. Uh, God, uh, if you will, is a lawyer. He's a judge. He's He concerns himself with the things that are lawful and the things that are right. So again, I, I want to in- encourage you to think that way and encourage you to think in such a way that when we start thinking about what God's doing here, kind of imagine yourself, if you will, to a degree in, 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 a, in a court. How would this argument would go? And specifically, how would it go if this was us? This is the nation of Israel he's bringing these, the, 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 this case against, but I want us to see and think and put ourselves in this situation. And, and, and we're going to talk this morning about a wearied people. Wearied people. And we know that, we, man, we get tired in this life. It just, it just Sometimes waking up is tiresome. And we, we go through this process of, of we get tired. We get, t- we get tired of certain patterns. We get tired of certain things that happen in our life. Sometimes we get tired of, 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 of uh, stupidity. We get tired of iniquity. We get tired of, I mean, we just get tired. But I want us to think about it this morning, you know, and make sure we're not falling into the same trap that the Israelites were falling into, which was they were getting tired of God. And that's a dangerous place to be. In Micah chapter 6 and in verse 1, he says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of the, uh, of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim done to Gilgal, Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I become, uh, shall I uh, come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will thou, the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He hath answered thee, O man, what is good? And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy 
and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. Thank you again, Lord, for what we see here in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, ready, receptive, and willing to receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that in no way, shape, or form are we wearied in this Christian life. That, Lord, we find our strength and we find our might in you. Lord, I pray that this morning that our hearts would be lifted up in praise for what you have done for us. And that, Lord, we would have the encouragement and the edification and the comfort and the hope, Lord, that comes by knowing who you are and what you have done for us. How great a salvation we have through you. The salvation can be found in none other save Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, what you have done for us upon that cross. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would have a desire, Lord, to simply hear and learn and to be the Christians you want us to be. I thank you again for this time. May it honor you and please you in all that we do. This I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So right there in in, in Micah chapter 6, we find he brings up this subject of a controversy. Now, a controversy is a legal term. It's a legal term. It's technically a dispute. So when there's a controversy that happens and occurs, it is a dispute. Specifically, it is in law, it's a suit between two individuals. It's a case that has come up before a court where parties are contending for uh, um, uh, the, the their respective claims and, and, and they're arguing against each other. Um, and, and again, it's generally done before a tribunal. And I, and I want to establish this thought process. So I want you to keep your place there in Micah. Put something there, a pen, a pencil, an envelope, whatever it is, and turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, again, in Deuteronomy, we find, again, the law that God has given to Moses and he's given to the nation of Israel. And in this law, we find the foundational principles of our legal system today and a majority of legal systems in the world. People will talk about it and they'll talk about Hammurabi and they'll talk about, you know, Roman law and things of that nature. But one of the foundational principles of law in this country and many other countries, is founded in biblical teachings, such as the number of witnesses, uh, things about hearsay, things about false witnesses, things about claims, things about how things go on in in a person's life, even things that that were done in ignorance that still needed to be addressed. But what we find here in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is where we're going to start. I want us to take a look at a couple of passages. Because again, he's talking to the nation of Israel, so he uses terminology that Israel's familiar with. And he uses that word controversy. Now today, we use controversy sometimes in a bit of a different format. But what we really need to think about it is from the perspective of God in this case. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he establishes this issue of controversy. Uh, Go there to verse uh, 8. It says, If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then thou shalt arise and get up into the place 
which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests and the Levites and unto the judge that shall be in those days and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. So very clearly we see he's establishing a judge. And we even have a whole book called Judges. Could you imagine that one of the responsibilities that Samson had as a judge of Israel was to judge the difference between what was right and what was wrong if two parties came to him? Now think about Samson for a moment. (laughs) We know Deborah was obviously one, and she performed that job very effectively. We know that Elihu was one. We know that there was multiple that were, or not Elihu, uh, Ehud was one. We, we, we know that throughout, throughout scripture, there's been multiple judges, Samuel being one as well. And as we go through this and we begin to realize that, that God's saying, look, if you've got something where you've got some things and one person's claiming one thing and another person's claiming another, and there's a the controversy between the two and it cannot be settled on your own, you've got to go to somebody to get this fixed. You don't just let it lie there and fester. You get it fixed. You get it fixed. Take a look at another passage. Go over to chapter 21. Just a couple of chapters over. Chapter 21. Chapter 21 and in verse 5. And again, we see something come up here. It says, And the priest and the son of Levi shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. Not only were the Levites the ones that were responsible for the priesthood, and if you will, having a spiritual connection with God, we now see that they're also responsible for being judges. This is why when a Levite showed up to your town, you welcomed him with open arms and received him. And you gave him a place. The Levites had no inheritance of land. The nation of Israel was divided up into the, the for, for the 11 tribes. And the 12th tribe, Levi, he didn't get property. The only thing that he had was the service of the Lord. And what we find here is he also find that as part of that service of the Lord, they were to judge what was right, what was wrong, who was right, and who was wrong. And you had to abide by what they said. And he says every single controversy that comes up has to be tried. You have to take it to someone to get it fixed. If you can't get it fixed yourself, you go and you get it fixed according to what the Levi says. Turn to chapter 25. Chapter 25. And again, uh, uh, using these as kind of the thought process of what we we have over here with the nation of Israel. In verse 1 of Proverbs or Deuteronomy chapter 25, he says, If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judge may judge them, then they shall justify their wick, the righteous and condemn the wicked. That was their responsibility. They actually had a judge, a Levi, somebody that would say, you're right, you're wrong. You're the one that's doing what is righteous. You're the one that's doing sin. You need to make recompense. You need to make reconciliation. You need to fix this. You 
simply need to have forgiveness in your heart. I mean, that that's how that would work. And we look at our law, uh, you know, how, how courtrooms work today, and in very similar fashion, we see some things like this. Now, if we go back over there to Micah chapter 6, what we find here is in Micah chapter 6, he specifically says in verse 2, Oh, hear ye, oh, hear ye, O mountains, the, the Lord's controversy. And he says that the Lord hath a controversy with his people. Here he is in the court of, if you will, the earth. The earth now bearing this witness, hearing what it has, hearing what God has to say, and to hear the response of the nation of Israel. And here comes the controversy. Here comes the issue that he begins to, to discuss with them. And here they are, you know, he's contending with this. Why? Because Israel refuses to settle. Israel refuses to come and make things right. Israel refuses to repent and to reconcile. And what we find is, even though they had a sense of, if you will, uh, uh, this mentality of them doing the spiritual things, it was beyond them and beyond their heart because they were sinning in their heart, even though they were, quote-unquote, doing right by their flesh. By going through the sacrifices, there was still a problem. There was still an issue. And essentially what he, what's going on here is God is suing Israel. God's the one that's brought up the controversy. God's the one that's bringing them to court. God's the one that's filed the suit. And he, what he's doing, he's suing them for breach of a covenant. They breached an agreement. He said, I will be your God and I will do these things, but you've got to do this. If I'm going to be your God, I want you to behave this way. If you're going to, if I'm going to be your God, <laughs> I want you to, to engage in this type of spiritual activity. But they refused. And they kept making it more about their flesh than anything else. And God finally comes to the point of where he's like, okay, I gotta sue you. I gotta bring you to court. And here he is in the book of Micah doing exactly that. In a legal form, he's bringing, uh, bringing it up and he's saying, look, all right, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna bring suit. I'm gonna say, here's my complaint. And he starts off with, if you will, in his opening statements in the very first part, in verse three, he says, oh my people, what have I done unto thee? What have I done unto thee? Now that question, can go one of two ways. It can go down the path of, what have I already done for you that you should be thankful and content and grateful for? Or to the point of, what have I done unto you that, 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 that you hate me so much? What have I, where, where, where am I wrong in this? He, he's actually allowing his, if you will, his authority here to be challenged. He's like, if you, look, I'm bringing suit, you come and tell me why it is you are breaching this agreement. And almost every agreement that is written, uh, if you will, uh, competently, there are specifications in that agreement for when things go wrong. 
that a person can walk away from the agreement if one party breaches the agreement egregiously and causes harm and hurt. That they can just go, I'm done. You realize that God could have done that? He could have gone, you know what, I'm done with you. Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Start off somewhere else. But he didn't, because God is a, is, he's not a man that he, that he should lie. And he very clearly has set forth a covenant with them, and he plans on keeping that covenant. That agreement still stands. That agreement is in force. That agreement, even though the nation of Israel has breached it in multiple areas, he's now coming to them and asking them, where did I breach? Can you find a fault? Where did I go wrong? Obviously, we know that that's not the case. He brings this complaint and he asks them that. He says, I just want you to answer that. As part of my claim, answer that. As part of my claim in in, in verse 3, it says, wherein have I wearied thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Because he gets to the root of the problem. He's asking, okay, what have I done unto you? And why is it that you are so tired of me? The nation of Israel had grown tired of God. You know, I can understand the world becoming tired of God. I can understand an unbeliever getting tired of hearing things about the Bible when they don't believe. But why in the world would it be that God's chosen people would grow tired of who chose them and who made the promises to them? The one that continually was giving them good things. Why in the world would they grow tired? And he says, what what have I done that has made it so it's just so tiresome? You know, sometimes you get tired at a job. Sometimes you're there and you're doing the job and you're doing the job and you're doing the job and you're doing the job. And after a while, you just get tired of it, right? You just get tired and you're just like, oh, I'm so done. And sometimes we get to the point of where we even trick ourselves into thinking uh, wrong thoughts in that regard. That somehow we are the oppressed. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to the garden to eat worms. That, that process. Now, now look, th- th- that shouldn't be the case. What we need to do is we need to obviously focus on what God is, 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 is saying here in this passage, saying, look, if there's something that we're tired about, let's go to God and talk about it. Let's go to God and talk about it. And here he is, he's like, I, you know, I have to file a suit to bring you to court to, in front of mountains so that you will testify against me? And this is what he says, he does that. He says, testify against me. His opening statement, he says, I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Now, we all know that God is not doing anything wrong in this scenario. We know that God has done far beyond and above anything that we would even remotely do. The very first time they grumbled and complained, we would have just killed them all. 
The very first time that they decided to have an uprising, we would have been like, I'm done with them. Done with you. Send a plague of locusts and have them eat. You know, it just, we, we, we'd be done. But thank God for his long suffering and his mercy and his care and his promises that he holds to. But what we find here is we find that here's his complaint. And he's like, where did I breach? Where, where did I uh, fulfill my obligations? Uh, did, did I cause you to fall away? Did I cause you to disobey in any way, shape, or form? He, he's looking for them to respond. He's looking for some sort of response from them. And Israel was behaving as if it was too tiring to have God as as, as their God. They were behaving in such a way at this point in time in, in, in their life the, the, the nation of Israel, that they were, if you will, acting like it's too much for me to do that. And if there is one thing that I have seen in churches today and a common problem among believers is it gets to a point where sometimes it's too much. It's too tiring. And we grow weary. Now look, I, I understand that our bodies, they grow old. I understand our bodies start slowing down. I understand that we get tired. I understand that, yeah, we need naps. I understand that we start going to bed earlier. <laughs> I understand all of that. But one thing that is becomes very, very clear and apparent is that we should never have that mentality when it comes to God. We shouldn't get in that point. We shouldn't get into that mentality. We should, it should never be, we should never be too tired to praise God. We should never be too tired to, 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 to worship Him. We should never be too tired to come and and fellowship with him. We should never be too tired. And here he's saying, he's saying, where did I weary you? Did I ask too much of you? Did I ask too much? You know, they, they, they had grown weary of his name. At this time where Micah is writing, you know what the, the, the two primary most popular gods were? Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth. And when Baal and Ashtaroth are, 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 are the favorable ones, those are the ones that are popular. Those are the ones that are more progressive. Those are the ones that are at the top of everyone's list that, 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 that you know, you want to be talking about and who you're worshiping. Now today, in this day and age, Baal and Ashtaroth, eh, they're not popular. They faded away a long time ago. But I'll tell you this, there's all sorts of other popular ones. Career. You know what another popular one is? Family. I shall have no other gods before me, is what he says. You and look, you 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 want a godly family? God had better be the priority. He had better be the priority. 
Now, family is extremely important. It is, it is very important. You find God talking a lot about it and the importance of it and the importance of teaching children in the family, the importance of edifying in the family, the importance of comforting one another, the importance of all of that. But again, that is all futile if God is not part of the conversation. If God is not the priority that drives it, then by all means, the rest is futile. And as we see here, they'd grown weary of him. He wasn't popular. <clears throat> they'd grown weary of the worship. Going to the priest. Praying. Praising. I mean, th- th- at some point in time, they just began to be despised. Um, and, and, and everything that was about self. Everything that was about the the... The, the, the elevation of, of the person, that became the primary thing. It was humanism. And it was all about whether or not they felt good. It was all about whether or not they received something. I mean, it was all about themselves. It was never about God at this point. They'd become weary of constant sacrificing. They'd become weary of the, the, the constant requirement of obedience. They'd become weary of the constant standards and the restraints he had put in place. You realize that restraints and things like that are put in place for a reason? Aren't you glad that there are certain things that God says, don't cross that line? But there's those people that they just want to—they just want to get as close to that line as possible. No, you need to steer clear of it. But you know, again, they'd grown weary of this to the point of where Micah is is now saying, "This is what God's saying. God is is essentially suing you. God's essentially suing you at this point, saying that you are doing what is wrong according to what we agreed upon according to the covenant." And here he is. He begins to provide evidence. So he begins to open up with the, here's the statement, here's, here's the opening complaint and, 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 uh, um, uh, he moves into this evidence in verse four and five. And he says, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor answered. And he says, look, you remember those two guys and how they caused a big problem? He says, those guys were against you and I took care of them. I gave you leaders that were there to lead you. I brought you out of a land where you were in bondage and you were nothing more than servants. And now he's like, I I have all this evidence of what I have done for you. I fulfilled my obligations. I followed through with what I promised. I am giving you so much. Why, why are you tired of it? Why are you, why are you so tired? And as we go through this, we get to this point where he begins to conclude some things. And in verse six, <clears throat> 
he says this, he says, wherewith shall I uh, come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And he's, he's kind of, if you will, responding to how they are responding to him. And, and, and their response is, is very clear here. The response is, is like, uh, how, why, why would I come before God? Why would I bow down? And he says here, uh, shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the body for, uh, uh, for the sin of my soul? He goes through this whole process, basically asking them and saying, uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're tired of coming before me. You're tired of bow downing before me. You're tired of just going through this process of all of these rams and these sacrifices. And as he says, these rivers of oil, you've gotten to the point of like, well, well, good grief. You're asking for my firstborn child. You ever wonder where that phrase came from, by the way? When somebody says, wow, gas is so expensive now that they're asking for my firstborn. And then they're going to stand in front of God one day and they're going to say, I had no idea. (laughs) No, you did. And he says, look, you know, here's the mentality. And he's saying, and God never even required that of them. Now, now the other ones did. They required a sacrifice of a human. God didn't. But what God wanted is God wanted the mentality of, I want your firstborn to serve the Lord. I want your firstborn to do what is right. I want your firstborn to be, a, if you will, a man or a woman of God. I want them to, to serve me. And here they're like saying, well, it's, it, it, it's against us to do this. You're asking too much of us. You're asking too much of us. All of this sacrifice is too much. It's wearisome. It's wearisome. And you have to think, is that what God asked of them? Is that what God asks of you? Let's ask that question. Does God ask of you endless sacrifices? Does God ask of you too much? Does he, does he ask of you it's, it's too much to come to church? It's too much to fellowship with believers? It's too much to read the Word of God? It's too much to pray without ceasing? It's, it's too much to do that which is right. It's too much to, to do all of these things. If you're looking at it from that perspective, then yeah, you're going to view it that way. I mean, look at what they were looking at. They're looking at, like, how many, how many rams do you need, God? How many calves do you need? Do you really need that much oil? Do, do, do you really want me to constantly come and bow down before you? Do you really, do you want me to give you my firstborn? This argument, this controversy was, if you will, a very serious one. This is why God's bringing it up, if you will, in this manner. 
as if it is a court case. Because a judge has to come and has to rule and is going to dictate what, what has happened here. And as you go through the rest of this chapter, he still he, he even starts referring from uh, people to cities and so on and so forth. But but here we are just starting off with the people and the controversy that he has with them. And this controversy that he has, this dispute, is that their mindset is thinking about something else. And they're thinking more about something other than what God has really asked them to do. And I'll tell you this, you will weary yourself in day-to-day activity, if your heart isn't in the right place. If your heart isn't in the right place, it will become very tiresome to come to church. If your heart isn't in the right place, it will become very tiresome to sit down and pray. If your heart isn't in the right place, it will become tiresome to sit down and try to read the Bible and receive something from God. It will become tiresome to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and the reason that this is, is this happens and occurs is because we have focused on the wrong thing. We focused on the wrong thing. You know, the, the, the whole concept of what they call, quote-unquote, magic today and those magic tricks is all about diversion. If I can get you to think and look over here while I'm doing something else with this hand, then you're, you're going to be more focused on that. Yeah, look, I'm not a big fan of them. Uh, I, I really don't care for them, uh, but, but, um, you ever see those ventriloquist dummies? And, and you're watching the ventriloquist do the, the, the thing with the dummy. And you're sitting there and you're watching that ventriloquist. And, and for me, I'm watching the guy that's speaking. And I'm wanting to see, is he moving his lips? Why is he holding his lips? And you can't understand him. And you see the, you know, the stuff, the muscles in the throat moving and everything like that. And you're like, no, I know he's talking. But, but, but do you ever figure out why there was a dummy? So you focus on the dummy, not on him. Because the dummy's the one that's moving and on, doing all sorts of stuff and acting and playing around and doing the, you know, back and forth and all that type of stuff. It's the dummy you're focused on. And I will dare say that many times in the case of whether it's ventriloquism or whether it's some sort of, you know, sleight of hand magic trick or whatever it may be, it's diversion from what the real issue is. The real issue. And I will tell you this, you will get diverted in this life into thinking about something else that you're not supposed to be thinking about. And the reason that they were so wearied and the reason that this controversy came up about breach and they were like, this is just too much to ask of us, God, is is because of this, is because they were focused on the doing of what these things were rather than the reason why. They never focused on the heart. They never stopped for a moment and said, okay, hold on a second. Why am I offering a sacrifice? Why does God even want me to come before him? Uh, I mean, what does God really want me to do with my children? And God gets right to the issue here. 
He gets right to this issue as, as, as we, we, we go through all this. You know, here he is. All he's asking them to do, it, it, it's not about the keeping of these things of the law. Remember, Jesus Christ, when he talked about keeping the letter of the law, they omitted certain things, didn't they? When they were sitting there and the Pharisees were sitting there counting down, you know, here, here's nine mint leaves for me, one for God. Here's, here's nine, uh, you know, little seeds over here for me and one for God. They were focused so much on those doing those things. And it became ritualism and traditionalism and it became a, a religiosity with no real pure religion in it. There was no connection with God. So when Jesus Christ shows up, they are far gone at this point in time. You know what? You know how they breached the contract? They removed God as party to the contract. The covenant now was theirs to keep. It wasn't about God anymore. And God brings it back to this. He says, look, you want to know why I gave you those laws? You want to know why I asked all those sacrifices of you? You want to know why the law existed in the first place? Here it is. Take a look at this in verse 8. He says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. He says, here it is. This is, this is what is good. This is what you needed to do, people. This is what you needed to have in your life. This is what had to happen. Otherwise, if you were focused on these things, you wouldn't have grown weary. And what is that? And what doth the Lord require of thee? Uh, Is it sacrifice? Nope. What is it? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. He asks three things of him. He said, this is all I required. You want to boil down what the law meant? You want to boil down to everything that was in the law and what it was talking about? Boils down to these three things. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Because that's all that the law is about. The law teaches you how to be humble. It teaches you to remove pride from your life and to put others in the first, to care about them. Because how did God answer when a lawyer came and said, what's the greatest? He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy strength, all thy soul, all thy might. And he said, and the, the second is like unto the first, love thy neighbor as thyself. There's the thought process. You know, you go through and you look at the law, and generally what is the law about? It's law is about two different people. And if you will, coming together, having a controversy, having a suit, having an argument. You know, here's one person. Well, he stole my donkey. Okay, did you steal the donkey? Yes. Okay, you got to pay him his donkey back plus six additional donkeys. Did you you steal his wife? Okay, well, that's adultery. We're both going to die now, you know. I mean, you, you go through the process and you see exactly what God's dealing with here. And he's talking about this violation, but it really was about, are you willing to do what is just according to God? 
Not according to man's justice. Man's justice is perverted. Man's justice is weird. Man's justice is just bizarre. We, we get some weird concepts of what we think is justice. I mean, again, you just sit down in the world and you start talking to, uh, to, to how people grade and, and, and uh, judge certain things, and it becomes really bizarre very quickly. Man can't issue justice. Because on one hand they say this, and then on the other hand they say this, which contradicts, and then the end result is, how can you have a law? God's law never contradicted. It was about being just according to him. And he said, I'm just asking you to do what is just. You do what's just, there shouldn't be an issue. He says, I'm just asking you to love mercy. I'm asking you that to be one of the things that you really care about in your life. I'm asking you to exhibit mercy to people that don't deserve it. I'm just asking you to, to, to come up when a situation occurs and happens in your life and things go south, that you exercise mercy and that you love that more than you love getting revenge. Man, don't we love to get revenge, though? Man, I mean, we, we know that verse, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And we're, 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 we're so focused on that. But people don't understand that, that God's just asking us to exhibit mercy. Not to condone sin. There's a, there's a big difference, okay? But to clearly articulate what mercy really is. You know, the, the mercy of God is there to save us sinners that did, did nothing to deserve salvation. Yet in God's great mercy, he extended himself to us and he simply asks us to do the same. He showed mercy to the Israelites. They, you know, they were, they were nobodies. They were nobodies in the world. And God said, I'm going to love them. Nobody else loves them. I'm going to love them. He extends mercy to them. I mean, you know, again, like I said, uh, our, our, our concept of that would have been the first time they murmured, we would have struck them all dead, started over. But we see very clearly that that's not how God operates. And he just simply says, look, this is all I want you to do. And, you know, you go through the law, and you know what the law continues to show? Mercy. Mercy. Like, well, I don't see it. I see it as a harsh punishment. Mm, then I dare say you're not looking at the law right. You're not looking at what God says about the mercy, about forgiveness, about how, how God had mercy upon David the way he did. And we find that throughout scripture. And here he's saying, look, I, I just, this is what you need to do. And then he says this in, in, in the third part, he says very clearly, uh, I just want you to walk humbly. Don't boast of yourself. Don't walk around thinking you're all that. Don't think you're the one that's the priority in this world. Don't think of yourself as the number one thing. But to just simply think of yourself as, here you are and God has a covenant with you. God has a covenant with you. You know, God has given us so great precious promises. You have eternal life if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Buddha and Allah don't offer that. 
The world doesn't offer that. Humanism doesn't offer that. You know what humanism offers? Humanism offers Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest. If you're stronger, it's okay to beat the other ones down. And that's what they're teaching. So we see very clearly here that God is saying, hey, I just want you to walk humbly. Just walk humbly. Work, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. But here, here's, here's the caveat to all of it. Those three things, but there was a predicatory factor in this. And what is it there that we see in that last phrase in verse 8? With thy God. He doesn't want you to do justly without him. He doesn't want you to love mercy without him. He doesn't want you to walk humbly without him. He wants it to be with him. The reason that the nation of Israel had wearied themselves with the workings and the grace and the just absolute tremendous covenant and precious promises God had given Israel was that they no longer had him as part of who they were. They had cut him out and he was removed. You know, every time I, I, I struggle in, a, in my Christian life and I start thinking these thoughts about, oh man, this is just too much or this is all these things. And I begin to realize that it's more about me and less about God. The more I complain, the more I realize it's the less about God and it's more about me. The, 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 the more I sin, the realize, I realize that it's, 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 it's less about God and it's more about me. The more that my thoughts plague me and haunt me and trouble me, the more I realize it's less about God and it's more about me. But the sad fact is, is as God in his opening statements asks the question, what have I done unto thee and wherein have I wearied thee testify against me? It's a sad thing. He hadn't done anything to cause it. There was no breach on God's part. There was no reason for it. There was no default found. He, he didn't fail in his obligations. He didn't fail to do what he was supposed to do. He didn't fail what he'd do what he, he promised. This was without cause. This is what's without cause. There's a quote that I, that, that D.L. Moody said. And he says this. He said, uh, and, and kind of trimming it down here, he, he says, love does not like to be forgotten. Love does not like to be forgotten. Your father and mother, they 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 don't want you to walk away from them so that you never have contact with them ever again and you never have, if you will, send them a little gift. But he says very clearly, he says, love does not like to be forgotten. And 
Dwight L. Moody, you know, kind of in, in the statement, he said, it's like God asking, what have I done that you should have forsaken me? What has God done that we should be tired of him or that we have, that we would forsake what he has done? And, and here's what he said. Here's what Dwight L. Moody said. He said, the most tender and loving words to be found in the whole of the Bible are from God to those that have left him without a cause. The most tender parts of Scripture is when God is pleading with those that have just simply chosen to walk away for no reason. For no reason. And here's God, if you will, in the form of a courtroom, bringing it up and saying, I got a problem. Let's resolve it. A controversy exists. Let's figure it out like it was established in Deuteronomy that we should. Let's get it fixed. Let's be together. Let's not be against each other. And God is pleading with His people. And all of this I can, I can see in the world today. I have heard Christians say, man, I just, you know, coming to church every Sunday is such a burden. You know, coming coming to services, the constant services that the church has, that's just too much. Now, I don't think that God really meant for us to to read His 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 Word every single day. I I I don't really think that 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 praying without ceasing, God just God just wants to know that we love Him. I actually heard somebody say that. Well, I don't pray. I, I don't really pray. I just have this kind of, if you will, this oneness with God, and He knows I love Him, and I know He loves me, and we're good like that. And I'm like, I wanted, the words that wanted to come out of my mouth would not have been good to the use of edifying. Yeah. <clears throat> Restraint was exercised. <laughs> And I was like, you realize what the Bible says, though, right? The Bible says, pray without ceasing. The Bible says it's precious when he, when we come and pray to him. That, that, that because he, he paid that price on the cross, we can boldly come to the throne of God and ask. And you're just like, no, I'm good. We just kind of hang. No. No, that's not how it works. I've seen so many Christians become wearied with a Christian life that they turn around and they say, you know what, I'm going to live for the world. And then 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you find up with them again, and what do they say? How are you doing? Oh, I'm just tired. The world will tire you out more. Why is that? Because only in Jesus Christ 
is rest found. He is called the Lord of the Sabbath because He is the rest. He is where we go to for peace, comfort, safety, and rest. If we are wearying ourselves in any way, shape, or form, it's because we lost sight of what God wants us to do. To be with Him. We lost sight of of doing justly, loving mercy, and, and, and walking humbly. But most importantly, we lost sight of walking with our Savior. If you're here today and, and, and you're struggling in your Christian life and it, and it just seems like it's tiring, I just want you to stop and I want you to ponder your path. I want you to consider a couple of things. I want you to think about what the Lord's talking about here. And I want you to kind of put your place in, in, in the place of Israel. What has He done to, to cause you to be weary? What has He done for you? Is he asked too much? Or is what he required so simple that it's easy to follow? I pray we're not weary today in well-doing. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time and opportunity, Lord, to just consider this passage of Scripture. And Lord, just like any court case, it's a sobering thought. It's sobering to think about. It's sobering when we realize the the allegations that are there. And Lord, I, I cannot just help but love how you tenderly ask and how you bring about the conclusion that what you've simply asked us to do is to walk with you to do what you ask us to do, and to love what you love. And Lord, I pray that we would simply do that this morning. We purpose and commit in our hearts that, Lord, we'd please you, that we would honor you, that we'd not cut you out of our lives, that we wouldn't grow weary because you're no longer with us. But, Lord, we'd walk day to day in strength and in might, according to your spirit, according to your word. Lord, may we do that as believers this day. And I thank you so much for all you've done for us. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.